while some are taking off, let's take our Bibles, and we're headed to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And we'll start there, and then we'll jump around here over the next few moments. Let's get started with just seeing uh, some brain tease. Here we go. See how you're thinking this morning. Name something that little kids have nightmares about. Boogeyman? What's that? Clowns. Anything else? Monsters. Okay. What they said is this. Clowns, the dark, getting left behind somewhere. Fire, spiders, and number one was monsters. Name an exotic house pet. Husbands? We're getting into that in the morning message. A snake? Parrot? Ferret. Ferret. Monkeys? Iguanas? What do you do with iguanas? You pet them? What do you do with snakes? Do you see pictures with people? Yeah, they cuddle up. I don't know. A pig. Okay. A skunk. Fox. Parrot. Snake or python. Monkey. And number one was a tiger or lion. That's exotic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> Name a profession that deserves a rage, a raise, a large raise. Nursing. You're all thinking the same answer. You're all thinking my profession. Okay, <laughs> not mine, but our profession. Whatever we do. Anything else? Any profession that they would say deserves a raise? They say teachers. First aid responders. Politicians, <laughs> paramedics, farmers, nurses, teachers, and number one was, we all thinking my prof- whatever our profession is deserves it. Name a question you dread being asked at a family reunion. <laughs> I don't mind being asked that one. Okay, what's that? When are you having kids? When are you getting married? How old are you? Okay. Any other questions that are dreaded? Who do you belong to? <laughs> How much money did you make this year? Did you lose or gain weight? That's always encouraging. Hey, you you put on a lot of weight, haven't you? What am I supposed to say? No. Okay. Where, uh, when are you going to have kids? When are you getting married? How's the job search going? I would say it this way to my kids. Did you get a job yet? Okay, that's, are you dating anyone yet? Okay, name some characters mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5. Characters mentioned that we've talked about in the, in the first two prophetic paths. What's that? The, the beasts, the creatures? The angels? The 24 elders? What would you say? Elders. The elders? Yeah. God on the throne. God on the throne. 
Okay, the Lord himself. Okay, you've covered most all of them. John's there, the mighty angel calls out, the 10,000 angels, the beast, the elders, the spirit of God. If you remember, chapter 4 begins, okay, with the fact that John is called up into heaven and said, I'm going to show you the things that should come hereafter. And so John is um, brought up into heaven immediately, and all of a sudden he sees all the future events starting to unfold, and this begins the prophetic section of the book. What we were noticing last time, is when John uh, records in heaven, and let me just state it, and then we'll read a verse, and then we're going to jump to another text. But there, it starts off, the thing that catches his attention is God on this throne, lightning and thunder coming out of the throne, and God is the centerpiece of the entire scene. There's the, the elders around him, and also the four different angels or beasts that are there. God has a scroll in his hand, and <clears throat> a scroll is going to include the judgments, and I'm suggesting to you it includes who has the ability to carry out not only the judgments, but bring about all of God's redemptive plan to its completion. Um, the line and the lamb comes forward, who is Jesus Christ comes forward. He takes the scroll. When he takes the scroll, what's the reaction in heaven? Do you remember? Yeah. Remember they sing that song, Worthy is... Yeah, and they do all the celebrating. I want you to catch something here, okay, that, uh, that we were talking about. Jeff brought it up afterwards uh, last week. And did you get your study in? Did you find anything? I, okay, so did I had the same result, okay? Uh, here we go. We're jumping down to verse 11. I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number is that myriad of angels saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. The next phrase is, yeah, Jeff brought it up and I would mentioned to him, it caught my attention while I was reading it to you last week and I hadn't studied it, so we were talking about we're going to both look and I think you probably found as much as I did. There's this great, huge cacophony of all kinds of voices that are blending together and they're celebrating and the thought was where we left was, can you imagine with, you know, the swelling in the heart? Okay, um, last Sunday, was last Sunday the, what did you guys sing choir? Was that the, uh, with God, nothing? Okay, okay. How did you feel as the choir was doing that? Was that stirring? Okay, okay. And so can you imagine this, this chorus and how we're to the point we want to be singing with it and we're like, wow, this is amazing. It's fascinating. Then he has a phrase in verse 13 that I don't understand. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. What is that? Okay, we know who's the ones in heaven that are rejoicing. It's already stated earlier. The elders, the angels, the elders, everybody who's in heaven, okay, are breaking out in praise. What does he mean by all that are on the earth? Is it, now, if this is, if we're, if we're understanding, this is the beginning of the tribulation. It's, it's just before it starts. Does that mean every human being on earth is going to stop and praise God at that moment? Do we have any indication that that's the attitude of mankind at this time in history? What's the attitude of most mankind? Okay, remember, the rapture has taken place. If we follow already the chronology of this, this specific text, the saints, we, have already been taken away. Who's left on earth? 
Okay, all the unbelievers are left on earth. When it says, and on the earth, that everyone stops, okay, is he talking all those people are going to stop and praise God? I don't have an answer I'm asking. Okay. 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 Yeah, in chapter 6, they're going to run from God and they're going to curse God as the seals go. And so when he says every creature, is he talking people as well or created beings um, or animals? Where every knee shall bow and I is... But it, but, and I think that happens eventually where every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But does that mean all the unsaved do it at the beginning of the tribulation? They will one day. See, I, I don't have an answer beyond this. Possibilities go through my mind. Okay? It does, is he describing something and is he projecting out and saying, when it's all done, then all the creatures. Well, then that fits the Philippians too. If that's what he's projecting, this is where it's going to get to. Is I'm not sure he's projecting. I kind of hesitate on that one. What about this one? Is he using pure hyperbole to just say, it's, it's almost as if everybody and everything was, it was just so amazing. He does hyperbole throughout the text. He does like or as. I'm not sure, I'm not sure about that one either. Is the possibility there's an actual outpouring of praise from the animal kingdom? That the animals, you know, the whales in the sea, all of a sudden at one moment, there's a, I I, I was going to make a whale sound, but that would, all of a sudden there's that, you know, the birds are chirping. Could that be a possibility? Okay, that they're understanding, you know, God's greatness. People don't necessarily respond, but, but creation would respond. I don't know. But wouldn't that be amazing if that's exactly what it is? That at one moment, all of a sudden, the, you know, there's that noise coming from, from the animal kingdom. That would catch people's attention as well. Um, what's that? Yeah. You know, who knows how nature is responding? I, I don't know. It's, just, it's a fascinating phrase. I didn't find anybody commenting on it. Did you? I found absolutely nothing. Go ahead. I'm trying to listen while you're while you're every right. In what way? What are you getting? Yeah, are you mean creature as in animal kingdom or creature as in people too? Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's defined. You know, just created creature. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, you know, the usage all the way through. I, I, I don't know. But I do know this now, the next verse, the next chapter, chapter 6, kicks off the beginning of the tribulation. Where here he goes in chapter 6 and he says, Okay, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and he starts listing off what he sees now as the seals are open. Let me just highlight this, okay? With the opening of the scroll, we begin the first of seven sealed judgments. 
There are seven of them. They're going to come consecutively. Their, uh, their description is going to be through chapter 6, and then we jump to chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 7 is in a parenthesis about the 144,000 witnesses. And so we get, a, we get a description. There's the four horsemen. There's also some of nature starting to uh, be... Uh, used as judgment. And so we get a picture. At chapter 8, verse 1, when he opens the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for a half hour, and it introduces... Anybody remember? The seventh seal introduces... Okay. The next set of judgments. Are the next... Well, the, the trumpet judgments come after, after like, seven, number seven seal introduces and the new series of judgments. And so they're all tied together. They, uh, and this is all involved. The seals seem to be the first half of the tribulation in particular, which we'll talk about in more in depth next week or so. But I wanted to pause, and I wanted to take a moment and do two different things. I wanted to point out something that is critical, and then I wanted to back up and get a little bit of a foundation here so that if somebody is with us who doesn't have a lot of that prophecy background, they know where we're going here in chapter 6. So let's just start off with this one. Where is the church? when the tribulation seals open. They're in heaven already, okay? And so the question is, how did they get there? How did the church, the 24 elders, as I understand, represent the church? How did they get to heaven already? And what is in their hands before the seal opens? They have something in hand that they they get rid of. The crowns. So uh, some happens to get them all into heaven and they have their crowns already given before the tribulation starts in chapter 6, if we follow the chronology of the text. And so we head with our Bibles over to 1 Thessalonians, and I wanted to rehearse this. A lot of you know it already, but I think it's important to rehearse because this is a modern debate. This is a huge debate coming out of schools, um, uh, theological training, a lot of your popular, more popular media ministries do not believe this anymore. They are teaching something different. Um, there's a, the, the new growing movement in theology. We would say dispensational, literal interpretation. The new movement through theological circles is Reformed or Covenant theology which doesn't teach any of this, okay? And it's going to become more and more predominant as a new generation of preachers come on the scene. And so you're going to be, you're going to be confronted with it more and more. Let me show you from the Bible, okay, what this uh, idea is. And we're taking the Bible at a literal sense. So we're headed over to chapter 4 of Thessalonians, and we're set, headed to verse 13. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are dead or asleep, okay? That you sorrow not, even as others which have no what? No hope, okay? In other words, are we going to be reunited with them? That's a hope. Are, what about those people? Are they going to be a part of the kingdom when Jesus returns? That was a hope. They're dead, so what's that mean? And he's going on. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them who are also dead or sleep in Christ, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. In other words, how certain is this, what he's going to teach? 
The Lord said it. It's absolutely positive. We bring you this by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are already past. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. We understand this passage to be teaching what 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 event the rapture okay the rapture talking about this event let me make sure we're all on the same page it's um it's a term not found in the bible but then again neither is trinity that doesn't take away that concept um the it will definitely happen it's going to definitely happen because by the word of the lord i'm telling you this jesus commented in john chapter 14 he said Let not your heart be troubled. You believe God, believe also. Okay? In my Father's house are many. And if it were not... Okay, so Jesus, and he's saying, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am... Okay, so he's saying, I'm not, I'm not fibbing about this. I'm not tricking you about this. I'm telling you a truth that we were just talking about this week in the office. 2023. How many who have been saved in length of time, how many thought we'd ever hit 2023? Do you remember, remember if you were saved? We thought it was going to happen before 2000. Okay? And it just seems like it's got to come any time. He's got to come back now. It's crazy now. Yeah, how can it get any worse? And so we're expecting it. But in the back of our minds, sometimes we go, is he really coming? I told you by the word of the Lord, if it were not so, he is coming. He is coming again. That's a reality that, that he says if it weren't so. But the question is, when he comes, how's it going to work? Now, this is one of those passages that the Old Testament saints didn't know about. They didn't have any clue about this event. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says that uh, we shall all be changed in a moment in twinkling of eye, do you remember what he says? I show you a, a mystery. What is a mystery in the Bible? A hidden a truth that has not yet been revealed. So this idea of the rapture was not an Old Testament concept. They didn't know about it. Jesus didn't reveal a lot about it. We'll get into that in Matthew 24 uh, next week. But uh, this whole idea of Jesus coming, and he's going to have two phases of his future coming. He's going to come to the clouds, but then the second phase, he's going to come... To the earth. Which one is Old Testament really talked about? The coming to the earth, setting up his kingdom. So Paul was revealing by the word of the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to reveal an event where Jesus comes, but only to the clouds. It wasn't known to those in previous years. But we get this information and he tells us, the Lord himself shall come. Okay, from heaven down to the clouds. What else happens in this event? What's the sequence? The Lord descends. We just read it. What else, what's going to take him? The Lord himself shall descend. What else takes place at that moment? There's a shout. Okay, does anybody have anything different than shout in your translation? Some, some say that that idea within that shout is like giving an order, like a command, like... A rousing cry, okay? Okay, so this is, and then there's the voice of the angel, there's the trumpet blast, so there's going to be 
you know, the fact that there's, there's uh, things going on besides just the Lord descending. There's going to be noise that is coming, sound that is coming. There's going to be the rousing cry. Some compare it to the idea of Lazarus, come forth, okay? And so there's that noise. Then he says the dead saints... Up to that point, there had some who had already been persecuted, who had died. The dead saints shall come up out of the ground. Okay, where have their spirits been? In heaven. What's coming out of the ground? Their body. This is their resurrection. Their body is, is now taken out of the ground, and it starts flying up into the air where it's going to be reunited with its spirit. And then he goes on and he says, Then we which are alive will follow right after them. So the graves open up or their bodies just transfer through the ground. And then they go, and then right after that, we go up into the air physically, spiritually and physically, we who are alive and remain. And so we meet the Lord in the air. What happens to our bodies at that moment? Okay, our bodies are changed. In a moment, in the, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is our resurrection. And then we all meet Jesus in the air, okay, with these transformed bodies. Uh, who was it? Um, somebody this week was just talking with another person saying, when we're going, I hope we can give each other a high five. We're on our way. Here we go. And so we're going to fly into the air. We're going to meet the Lord. And then what happens to all of us, the saints? Where do we go? We go back to be with the Lord, ever to be with him. We return to heaven. And that seems to be, we're in heaven already. That I think, I'm convinced it is. The, uh, the 24 elders representing, we're in heaven already before the seal even starts. Okay, the seal judgments. And so what we know is that there are different people who have different opinions about this. And to be fair, the reason that they have these arguments are there are some texts that can be interpreted by different uh, mindsets. Okay, um, there's one group that says, okay, it happens at the end of the tribulation. They don't accept the idea that the saints are in heaven before. They say we go through the tribulation and Jesus comes from the clouds and as he's coming, we go to meet him and we come back to the earth with him, right in all that same, same moment. Okay, and the reason that they believe that is because 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about the last trump shall sound. Therefore, it's the last of the seven trumpet judgments. They make them the same, and they say we're going to go up into heaven at that moment. So basically, this is a popular teaching. It's called in theology post-tribulation, the rapture at the end of the tribulation. And where it means for us is we go through the tribulation and experience what uh, everybody else does at that time. Then there's teaching that says that sometime, whether it be the middle or close to the middle, that's when Jesus comes back. And he takes us away at that moment in the middle of the, somewhere close to the end of the first three and a half years. This is called the mid-tribulation, and it's, there's a morphing from that called the pre-wrath uh, tribulation. And uh, that is based on this idea that we are not appointed unto wrath. And in Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the wrath to come. It happens during the seals. Therefore, we don't get raptured until the seal judgments and the seal of wrath takes place. We'll talk about that when we get into the seals. Then there's the group that says, right be- sometime before the tribulation, 
shortly before. I don't know how long in between, but shortly before the tribulation, this is pre-trib rapture. That's what I believe and am convinced in my heart this is the biblical position, the pre-trib. One of the reasons is because prior to the seals being opened, which begin that tribulation period, prior to that we're already pictured in heaven, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. But that's not the only proof. Let me give you some other proofs that, uh, that would indicate this. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Remember he is writing Revelation 2 and 3 are to the churches that are getting this. As he speaks to the one church, he makes comment to the church uh, in Philadelphia, and he makes this statement in Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. There's several thoughts that stand out in that one text. Is it just Philadelphia that is going to be preserved, the church there? I don't think so. The reason being is he speaks of a certain period of time, a time of testing or judgment. Uh, He uses the hour of temptation in the King James. It's that testing, it's evaluating, it's judgment. And he says that there is the hour, there is a set time where there's going to be this this testing, this judgment that's going to take place. Upon how many people does it come according to that verse? All all the world. It's a worldwide testing or judgment. And it's some specific hour that uh, that these guys already know about. The Church of Philadelphia is, he's referencing that idea that there is the hour of testing is going to be coming. You know, you've probably heard about it already, and which he did. Paul, uh, Paul's already talked about some of these testings in his other epistles. Okay? The worldwide testing is coming, and the saints, the word that you want to catch here is he says, to try the world, dwell them upon the earth, but I will keep you from the hour of testing. Literally, in the original language, it is out of. It is not the idea, I'm going to walk with you through the fiery den. This is, I'm going to keep you totally away from it. So there's a worldwide testing, something that is coming in the future, and I'm going to keep you people who have been faithful from experiencing that whatsoever. That's one proof. If you take your Bibles and head over to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is another text where he's talking about future events. First and 2 Thessalonians, we've already read part of it. 1 Thessalonians, the question was, what happens to the dead saints? Do we have hope? Will they be resurrected? There was a lot of questions about future events coming from Thessalonica. So when he writes 2 Thessalonians, he's continuing to teach them about future events. And as he teaches them... Catch, we're going to jump down to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. He's dealing with end times. Don't be upset about the end times. Don't be, don't be you know, pushed away from truth. Don't be unsettled about it. Let no man deceive you by any means. In other words, by the way, the word is, let no man is. Stop letting people. There were people coming to the church already giving different ideas and doctrines about this future event. And so he says, stop letting them influence you. 
That day shall not come except there come, and now he gives ideas about the future. He's basically saying, okay, what is, when is this day of wrath that we're not appointed to? When is it going to be coming? Which he's talked about in First, uh, in first Thessalonians. He says, be not sh- soon shaken. There's two events that he says must take place before the day of wrath is going to come. I understand the day of wrath to be the idea of the tribulation, as he's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and 5, 1. And so he's saying, okay, don't be soon shaken before the tribulation comes. Don't worry. I wrote you and said, comfort one another. You're not appointed unto wrath. And some of you are still upset about, well, we're getting persecuted. Are we in the tribulation? Don't be soon shaken. Let me remind you and give you more information. Before the great day of wrath, before the tribulation, two things have to happen. One, there's a great apostasy. There's some type of you know, international, universal uh, apostasy in Christianity for that day shall not come except there be a falling away first. Whatever that apostasy is, whatever, whatever you know, movement, I don't know. Okay, You may know, but I don't. He just says that there's going to be a great apostasy away from Christian truth. Then he says, secondly, something else has to happen. What is the second event that has to happen before the beginning of the tribulation? Okay, he says in the second part of verse 3, and that the man of sin be revealed, the one who is the son of perdition. He's being very specific here that there's some person who is definitely sold to evil. He's called the son of perdition, and he says he's going to be revealed. We're going to jump into this in a few minutes. In Daniel chapter 9, Okay, He makes it clear that the kickoff of that seven-year period is when Antichrist does what? He signs a treaty with Israel. And he is a national leader of some sort. He's a leader of the European Confederacy. He signs a a treaty, a seven-year treaty with Israel. And this is the moment that, according to Daniel 9, starts the countdown of the final seven years. Well, before he's revealed by signing that treaty, okay, how did, I'm saying it backwards. The, the day of wrath does not start until that treaty is signed. That's what he's saying. And he's telling them, don't worry, you're not in it yet. Okay, we're not there yet because that's when the tribulation starts. And he goes on, he makes the comment that he, uh, before this Before this man is revealed, something else happens. Keep on going with me through the text. He describes him as the one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's Antichrist, Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Then he says, remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed. What keeps him back from being revealed? Something is holding Antichrist from from taking over. He says, For the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Only he who now... I I have a struggling translation here. Okay? I have he who now leteth. Okay? Somebody have something, a different phrasing? What would you have? Hinders. Okay. Which is the... Which is the correct... And clearest translation. Only he who now hinders will hinder until he be taken out of the way. Somebody 
is holding back sin. Now, there's a possibility of who it is. Some say it's the man of sin holding back sin. Okay, that makes no sense, right? Does that, is that obvious to you? The one who's holding back is not Antichrist, yes? He's already described as being evil, promoting evil. He's not holding back evil. He wants to get it going. And, the, and Paul is saying he's not going to get it going until after something or somebody who's holding down sin is removed, is taken out of the way. The question we have to answer is, who's holding down sin? So the possibilities are... The church is a possibility. Do we have a cleansing effect? Do we have a stifling effect to some degree? Yes or no? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. Okay, so we're supposed to have an impacting influence. Who has a greater influence on holding down sin? The Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because that's his job. When Jesus said when he comes, he will reprove the world of sin. He will rebuke them of sin. Does the Holy Spirit bring conviction to the world in general? The answer is yes. Yes. And so when we look at that text, we say, okay, the Antichrist is not going to be revealed. We're not into the day of of tribulation until Antichrist is revealed. He cannot be revealed until there's a great apostasy and the man of and and the one who's holding down sin is taken away which probably lends to the great apostasy and so how if it's the holy spirit what does that mean the holy spirit is taken away okay well you're basing this on other teaching you're basing it what's his job right now what what's he do with every believer okay Yeah, okay. Do you remember the Holy Spirit's job? When Jesus said, I'm leaving, was the Holy Spirit ever on planet Earth before Jesus said this? Yes, he was. Okay? So when he says, I'm going to send another comforter, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't um, infinite or eternal. or, But it means, what about an intimacy with the Holy Spirit? And Jesus says, the Comforter will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Do you remember how the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, came on people in the Old Testament? Anybody remember what he did? Did he ever come upon somebody in the Old Testament? Who? David, Samson. Okay, Saul one time, even King Saul. What would you say? Elijah? Okay, he would come... And he could go, but for a special task. That's why David says, remove not thy spirit from me. Because in the Old Testament, it was a come and go thing. And so the Holy Spirit could be present. Now Jesus says, when I leave, I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm going to leave somebody with you who will not only come to you, but he's going to, and he goes on and says, he's going to stay for how long? Did you catch it? He says, when he comes, he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And where's he going to be? He's going to be in you. Okay, and this begins that that idea of the indwelling of the spirit, which he writes later on to the Christians and saying, don't you know? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you and you have of God, and you're not your own for you're bought with a price? How many people is he talking about who are bought with a price? 
All the believers. All the believers. It's all plural here. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And so if the Holy Spirit is going to stop that indwelling work in um, in people at large in that sense, and he's going to limit that ministry and go back to what he did in the Old Testament, what happens to us? If the Holy Spirit leaves, we got to go with him because he's indwelling us and he says he's going to be with us forever in that sense. And so the idea that the Antichrist can't be revealed until the one who withholds sin, he's taken away, which includes us that we're taken away because of the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians, I referred to it just moments ago, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 5, also mentions, you are not appointed unto the day of wrath. Okay, and he's talking in those texts about end times. He's not talking about hell. He's talking about end time period, and that's their questions. Are we going to live in that day of tribulation, that day of wrath? And he's saying, no, no, no. It's not going to happen to you. Then you go to Revelation chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, read all the way through chapter 18. There is no mention of the church on earth at all. The 24 elders aren't mentioned in that whole period of time. And as it gives the predictions of what's going to happen on earth and uh, going on during the judgments of the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the vile judgments, the church is never mentioned, which is strange because who's this book written to? Chapters 2 and 3 to churches, seven churches. But he's never saying, you're going to be here, and this is what you're going to do. It, it talks in a broader sense of here's what the world is going to do, or here are what God's chosen Jews will be doing, which he brings them up several times through that text. But the church is never mentioned until we get to the very end, chapter 19. In chapter 19, he talks about the church, but he uses a different term. And he says, they're already in heaven before Jesus comes back. Go to Revelation 19. Let me show you. Revelation 19. Who is in heaven before Jesus descends? Go to Revelation 19. Jump down into the text. Jump down to verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. A white horse, and he that sat upon him, what's his name? faithful and true, and in righteousness he's going to judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his heads were all these crowns. He had on his name written that no man knew but he himself. He's clothed with vesture, dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Okay? The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen. And he's going to come all the way down to this earth, and he's going to destroy Antichrist and Antichrist armies. Who is the rider on the white horse? That's Jesus Christ coming again. At the end of the tribulation period, at the end of that seven-year period, he's going to descend from heaven and come all the way down to planet Earth. Go to chapter 19. Go earlier in the text. Earlier in your text, you have the singing that's being done in heaven and judgment. And we jump down to verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for what event? The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife, she has half made herself, past tense. She has made herself ready, and she continues to be ready now. And he goes on, he talks about, 
Okay? And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, and the fine linen in the righteous, is the righteousness of the saints. And blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper. These are true sayings. I fell at his feet to worship him. The bride is already in heaven and already prepared before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so obviously what we have is that idea that, um, that we're in heaven sometime before then, and the other texts are telling us when, before the tribulation. Um, throw another thought at you. In the, in, the, if the, in the book of Revelation, how do I want to say it? Let me back up. Who's the witnesses in the world right now? Who's got the responsibility? Okay. The church has the responsibility, yay? Yes, no? You agree with that? Okay, we have the responsibility. All of a sudden, in the book of Revelation, he is giving a great commission to others. Why do you give the great commission to others if the church is still there? Okay, what does that indicate to you? There is no church there. Who gets the great commission in the book of Revelation? Chapter 7 of Revelation, at the kickoff of the tribulation. Who is given the great commission to go and preach the gospel? Anybody remember? The 144,000 who are what nationality? Jews. And they're told to preach the gospel everywhere. Who else is given the gospel to preach? They come in the second half of the tribulation. There's two of them. The two witnesses who are doing miracles, etc., etc., and they're witnessing. There's also a third group that goes out and preaches the gospel. Anybody remember who the third? It's only one verse mentions it. The angels. The angels are flying and giving a witness. Why does God introduce a whole new set of witnesses if the church is also present? He could be compounding, I have no doubt. But it seems to me, putting it all together, the reason is he's not going to leave himself without a witness. And the church is already out of there, so I'm going to have them be the witnesses as they take up the Great Commission. Another thought. The application of First Thessalonians. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The next passage in chapter 5 says we're not appointed unto wrath. How do we... How do we comfort if we are appointed unto wrath? You know, hey, God bless you. God's going to come back and get you. And, but you're going to live through the tribulation. Now, comfort one another that we're not appointed unto wrath because what's going to happen, we are going to be taken away before that. The imminency of it. Do you remember, do you remember what imminency means? Imminency means at any moment, any moment. Where do we get that from First Thessalonians 4? <clears throat> Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air. What did Paul expect? What is that phrase? Then we which are alive. What does that indicate from Paul? He thought it was happening in his day. He thought it was happening in his, in his day. In Thessalonians says, while we are looking for the glorious appearing of, the, of the Jesus Christ. He expected it in his daytime. It didn't happen. Do we expect it in our lifetime? Oh, we sure do. It could be at any moment. Might it wait for another 50 years? Yeah, it could happen. We don't know. But he is that imminency of the rapture. The tribulation is a period for Israel. I'm going to... 
I want to start on this a little bit today and we'll really develop next week. That idea that it is not a time, the last seven years are not a time for the church. It's a, it's a, I, I get to it. Just trust me for now, we'll get to it. That he's saying to the Jews, I'm giving you a timeline of future events. He tells Daniel and he says the last seven weeks are determined for your people and your city. Makes it very clear. The prophecy is all about the Jews, not the church. The church is in heaven before he comes back, so we have all these ten we put together, and we conclude that we're going to be in, he- in heaven. I-, I want to bore you for another minute, okay, with this thought. And I'm giving you this because this is what's being done now in a lot of writings. Um, like I said, the, the popular preachers right now that are, that are catching the books and catching uh, people are listening to sermons by hordes, they are leaning towards Reformed theology. Reformed theology basically is summarizing, is going to say this about end times, that the events in Revelation are not literal. They're all spiritual. Um, does, there is no rapture, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but there is a coming of Jesus, but all these other things are peripheral. With that, they say this. They say what we just covered, what we just talked about from these verses, was never taught before 1847 by, uh, by a preacher by the name of John Darby. And that's the first time it was ever taught. Nobody ever, ever wrote books about this. No indication. So this is a very new doctrine which makes it spurious or questionable. And so that's their argument based on church history because they put a lot of clout in church history and what's written. And so they make this argument. Uh, and, it's, and so we look and say, wait a minute. Is there any indication by early church fathers, did they understand anything like Jesus was coming again? Did they understand he was coming before the wrath and tribulation? And so in response, which you're probably not going to do, but you have it in your mind, uh, it's not true. All these different writers have written about the idea of a rapture. And they're pretty early writers. They're pretty early in church history, but they talk about Jesus coming at any moment. And so there's a, there's a slew of them. But again, if you want to postulate some type of truth, just don't deal with the facts. Does that ever happen in the political realm? Okay, does it ever happen in the theological realm? Yes. Okay, and so you go, wait a minute, did any of these guys, did, you know, these are guys that are writing around 100 are really close to John. When did John write Revelation. 94, 95, 96, anywhere from 90 to about 96. We don't know. But that's per, these are pretty early writers that are writing commentaries. And some of them even have these comments that it's talking about, prepare your heart, turn to the Lord. It'll be possible for you to escape this great day, this day of tribulation. Um, he writes in his commentary on Revelation 4. He says, The church shall be taken away, the good will be removed, seeking to avoid that great persecution. Here's one that's writing, All the saints and the elect of the Lord are gathered together before the tribulation, which is about to come and taken to the Lord. So this idea that our position is very new, very novel, and it's just you know because of modern times. That's just not true historically. It's based in scripture and it was taught and held to not by everyone, but by a number of scholars, even in early church history. And so we come and we say, okay, before the scroll is opened, the church saints are already in heaven. We've seen that. Okay. The church saints have already received their crowns. What does that tell you? 
if they've already received their crowns that they're casting. Do you remember, remember when he first sees heaven in chapter 4? He says, and is, it, is it in verse 10 of Revelation? Uh, the four and twenty elders fell before him, worship him forever and ever, and cast their crowns before his throne. When do you get your crowns? It's the Bema seat. The Bema seat is the judgment for Christians. We're not judged whether or not we should go into heaven because we're already there. Okay, we're already there. What are we judged for? Our works, our service to Jesus Christ. Have we been faithful? There is five rewards or crowns that are specifically mentioned. One is soul winning. One is purity of life. One is enduring trials. One is uh, looking for the Lord's appearing. And the last is for faithful preachers. Those are five that are specifically mentioned. There may be more. And so those crowns are distributed. And we give, we do what in our praising? When we, after we're rewarded. We give them back to him because... He deserves it, not us. He deserves all the praise. Interesting, in the chronological setting of chapter 4, this is done before the tribulation starts, which means not only does the rapture take place before the tribulation, but so does the Bema seed of Christians. So is there a gap of time? The rapture takes place. We get our judgment taken care of, and then the tribulation starts. If so, how long of a gap of time? Guess what? We don't know. We don't know. Um, you know, I know that in... Remember those novels that came out a few years ago? LaHaye and who was the other one? Jenkins and LaHaye. Do you remember that? What did you say? The Left Behind series. They put... They, they suggest that idea that there was like a... Since the uh, disappearance, there was like almost a year before the kickoff of the tribulation. That's a possibility. I don't know. I don't know. How long does it take for God to give us our rewards? I don't know. I'm going to be very quick because I don't think there is any. He could do it momentarily. It could all happen in an instant. Um, We understand that. So I don't know. Therefore, not only does it seem that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, but also the Bema seat where every one of us has to give an account of ourselves. Then we kick off the tribulation. Now, we started with this. Uh, at the very beginning, we said when we're studying the book of Revelation, there's four basic questions. We said that you have to ask these questions as you're going through it. What does it say? What does the text say? Look for what it says, not for what it doesn't say. Then we said, number two, we have to ask, what does it mean? Is it symbolism? Is it allegorical? It's common, normal speech given in prophetic form. Then we said this, how does it fit? How does it correlate to other scripture? And then we made this uh, last statement. How does it work? How does it apply to our life? I want us to take a couple weeks now, and I want us to rehearse this. Before we go further in the book of Revelation, remember we said this. The book of Revelation is the capstone of prophecy. It won't make as much sense unless you understand previous prophecies about the tribulation about that time period. And so I want to take time to go back and look at like three or four Old Testament passages that help lay out the prophecies. Look at the teaching of Jesus, where in Matthew 24, he says, two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, one shall be... Okay, what's he talking about there? Is that the rapture? 
If it is, then Paul made a mistake when Paul said, I am showing you a mystery, something never before revealed. So what was Jesus talking about in Matthew 24? And so we want to just work through, few of those texts, and then we'll have, okay, now we're ready to say Revelation chapter 6, Revelation 8, and then break down when these things occur. So the next couple of weeks we're going to do more Old Testament prophecy and just kind of do a review. For some of you, you know it so well, you don't need it, but for the rest of us, review is really good. And so that's where we're going to be heading. I've, I'm going to stop.